I'm really inspired by, and it doesn't look anything like Emory Douglas's work, but I'm very inspired by what he did for the Black Panther Party and being able to like use art to be able to like share messages, you know, very rapidly. And so in that idea, in my mind, I was like, hey, if I need to get a message out rapidly, you know, and if I'm just like using the X-Acto knife to like cut things out, what does that look like? If I had to get on the computer really quickly and do something digital and I don't have time to like click and then like draw out the little pin to make it a curve, like what does that look like? So that is often reflected in my work. That's oftentimes why clients want to hire us is because of that particular style. That use of just like, let's use negative space. Let's use very simplified shapes to get the very bare minimum across to folks. And I think about that in the means of activism and organizing. What is the very foundation that I need folks to understand? And if I complicate it with a whole bunch of other things, people are going to bring all this stuff in that I don't need them to. So my work is really reflective of communicating the very simplest form of what I'm trying to say. Welcome to Works in Process, the podcast that asks the hows and whys behind creative work. Take a ride with me, designer and educator George Garastegui. As I learned from my guests, there's no one way to being a creative, but endless possibilities fueled by passion, determination, and of course, process. That's my guest, Teresa Moses. She's a design researcher, creative director, organizer, and an educator based in St. Paul, Minnesota. Teresa is a proud Black queer woman dedicated to liberation of Black and Brown people through art and design. Her work focuses on race, identity, and social justice. She advocates for positive change in our community using creativity as tools of community activism. Teresa is the creative director of Blackbird Revolt, a social justice-based design studio and assistant professor of graphic design at the University of Minnesota's College of Design and she's the director of its Design Justice Network. Her design research interests include Project Natural, which creates spaces to educate, connect, and empower Black women about their natural hair and self-identity, and Racism Untaught, a curriculum model that reveals radicalized design and helps students, educators, and organizers create anti-racist concepts through the design research process. With so much on our plate, we dig into it all to find out how she determined that social justice was her calling. Listen to my convo with Teresa and learn how she managed to juggle it all. Enjoy. Hey, Terry. Welcome to the Works in Process podcast. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule and your academic life to be here with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to do something kind of fun before we get into your work and your creative process. As I start off each episode with a kind of a rapid Q&A session. Are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever this is, I'm ready. <laughs> um, coffee or tea? Tea. Paper or digital? Digital. Research or teaching? Teaching. Duluth or St. Paul? St. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Duluth. <laughs> Art or writing? Art. Nice. And then I do another thing where it's just quick word association. So the first thing you think of when you hear these words, creativity, art, determination, justice, business, professional, failure, mm, white supremacy, community, love, education, decolonization, mistakes. Mm, second chance. Skills. Talent. History. Pride. Opportunity. Mm, that bag. 
money. <laughs> Accessibility. I'm thinking about access, but you've just said it in the words. I feel like it's not valid response. I don't know. Large type. Cool. <laughs> Future. I think of Afrofuturists. And last but not least, process. Hard work. Great. So, you know, as I read in your bio in the beginning of the episode as we started, there were so many things that you do and what you've been doing in the past couple of years. And I just want to get us understanding who you are. Can you tell us a little bit how you got introduced to art and design? So I feel like the way that I got introduced to art is like a trend now to be like black and be like nerdy and into anime. But that is exactly how I got introduced to it. I was super into anime. I'm, stu I'm still into anime, but really when I was younger, I mean, it started with like Sailor Moon for sure. I'm still a Sailor Moon nerd for sure. And I started trying to draw the characters and I got really interested in their outfits, you know, also creating a narrative for them. But like, I started creating my own show. Like I started creating my own characters with their own outfits. And then I was like, oh, I'm really interested in fashion design. And so that's really how I got into the field of design is really thinking about clothing and styling. And so when I went to undergrad at the University of North Texas, I majored in fashion design and um, minor in African-American studies. And it kind of like brought both of those things together in my work. When I graduated, I worked in the industry as an apparel and graphic designer. Really the graphic design came in the midst of it because I was working in a, in a design firm which did like outerwear and most of their stuff was like menswear, but there was women's and children. And that, those are the lines that I was over. Um, we did a lot of licenses. So like NFL, NHL, all of like the sports areas, but then also like women's and kids would do like Betty Boop and Care Bears and Bratz and like all these things came that time, you know, where it was like, we need a website. And of course, because I had the lighter load, lighter, I put that in quotations because as a woman in the design field, like absolutely people are absolutely overworking us for sure. But like, because I was foreseen to have the lighter load, the, that duty was kind of handed over to me. And then as I worked on ads for the business and website stuff and all kinds of email blasts, all that types of stuff, I then was like, you know what? I can teach an illustrator class. And then I started to look up, what do I need to do to teach an illustrator class in college? And then, you know, I found out, okay, you need an MFA. So you're getting to go back to school, all that stuff. And then everything just kind of snowballed from there. Then you go, go get your graduate degree and then start looking for a job. And here I am now. Well, that goes into to my other stuff was like how you stumbled into your first creative career and obviously shifting from fashion into design and, and looking about I guess, teaching and thinking about how that, that impacts and thinking about going back to school kind of did the same thing where, you know, you just kind of focus on some one thing and then you're realizing, hey, maybe there's a little bit of a bigger mission and then, oh crap, I have to do all this other stuff <laughs> to reach that goal eventually. So as you go through that little bit of a, of a shift and going back and stuff like that, when did you first consider yourself a creative? I think I always consider myself creative even when I wasn't necessarily doing art, but I was always like, so like, if you even like have a conversation with my mom, I was always very preoccupied with like creating worlds. Okay. So like I used to play with Barbies and 
I had a closet in my room and I would like create her whole like house. Like I didn't have, you know, we didn't have the money to have like a Barbie house and like, you know, the big old thing, but I would create my own thing. Right. So like taking my mom's like old credit cards and cutting out the visa or the MasterCard logo. And that's like her credit card and things like that. So I was always obsessed with like creating worlds. And like, I remember at one point I was really into like Legos, creating worlds with like the little tiny Lego people and like so I was really always a creative kid. I did a lot of this stuff with Sculpey. When I found out Sculpey existed, it was over. My mom had like all kinds of stuff, earrings and like little bowls. And like, I would always make these little trinket animals. Like I was always this creative kid. So I don't know if I ever didn't think of myself as a creative person. Like I, I even remember like going outside when I was younger, this house that we lived in had like this backyard that the place where we were at used to be under the lake. So there was like a ton of fossils and like rocks and all this kind of stuff. So there was like this huge hill of it behind us in our backyard. And I used to like make, you know, a house, you know, for myself. And like, I was the only one that played up there. I had siblings, but like, that was like my kind of area and space. So I think I've always thought of myself as creative. Now thinking of myself as an artist, I just got into that. Right. Because I feel like, you know, I went in and I'm like, oh, I'm this designer. And if you're an artist, the differences between the, an artist and a designer, like for me, has always been like the struggle. Like as a designer, you have an intentional thing. Like you have to give an intentional message and communicate an intentional thing. Um, whereas an artist, you can really do what you want, leave it up to other people to interpret. And for me, you can, I feel like you could even see that in my work, this kind of tension between like, I'm creating this thing that's considered art. But I want people to know exactly how I feel and exactly what I want them to get from it. And I feel like you can see that in my work. So I don't know. I think it's calling myself an artist is kind of I'm just now getting comfortable with it. Um, I don't think I've ever really called myself that. I called myself more of a designer, but I think I have always been an artist. I just I don't know. Why I was denying my that title for myself. Is that because of intention, you think? I think it's because of the intention question. But I think it's also because like when you see artists, like, do I fit in that category, you know? And then also how many black women artists do you see? Like, I don't know, you know, like, I feel like you have to get to some level to be able to call yourself that. And I don't think you can call yourself that. I was really under the assumption that other people had to give you that title. And then again, it's like, you know, as a person of color, who are you waiting on to give you that title? Like, it definitely is not going to be the mainstream. So like, I think it was really this kind of like internal battle about am I qualified, right? Is my work valuable enough or considered to be whatever for me to be called an artist? I think it was really about like title placement and who gets to say that and, you know, all of that. No, I, I actually think that's a really good point of the fact of usually you don't consider yourself to give you that title. It's kind of bestowed upon you because you're hoping that other people see it within you versus maybe as a designer, because we tend to be working with a little bit of clients more, there is a direct connection to what we're supposed to be doing versus this is sometimes personal reflection. And I think that I found it really nice that you said there is intention to what you're doing to your work. So it is a little bit of mixing the artist with meaning versus just kind of how does the viewer take consideration of what you're creating? No, you're doing it with, with, I guess, design decisions because you know the impact <laughs> that it could have. Absolutely. Speaking of that, your design tends to be rooted in, in the things that you're trying to express. For me, when I'm looking through your stuff and when I did a lot of research, is rooted in activism, rooted in, in, in a place of, of letting people know what voice you're trying to share. Do you remember the first piece that you created like that? To be honest, 
I don't think it's any of these major pieces that folks see right now. I think the first piece that I did actually was more, it more involved fashion. And it was an illustration of this black woman. And she had on this print that was inspired by West African culture. And I think for me, that was probably the moment in time where I'm like, oh, wow, I can create something that centers blackness. And that was in undergrad. So I would say, and no one has ever seen that piece. And as a matter of fact, I don't even know if I have that piece still, <laughs> but I think that was like, that is the, exactly where my mind went was this piece. And I remember it was like yellows and purples and blacks and whites that this black woman who was in like this very regal stance, you know, that, cause I love doing like fashion illustrations and she was in this stance. And I remember the pattern very vividly in my mind, but yeah, I think I'd say that was the first piece for sure that I knew I could use my artistic and creative voice to bring about like messages that would maybe impact people or empower black women specifically. No, I love if we can find that. <laughs> I'll try. I don't know where it is. But I literally can remember it. I literally, I can really remember it in my head. I just don't even know. I don't think I have it. <laughs> well, thanks. I'm, I'm glad that we're uncovering something that nobody really knows about it. You know, something more deep rooted and personal and, and so our paths have kind of crossed a couple of times, primarily in the education and the diversity space. I think we first met in 2017 at the AIJ National Conference in Minnesota. Um, we also met again in Arkansas at a retreat and then at the Decipher Conference in Michigan, which was an educational conference. And that's where I kind of learned about your racism untaught research and workshop with Professor Lisa Mercer. Now, there's a two-part question. Can you first tell me exactly what that is? because I've seen it, I've watched it, I've looked at you, put the pieces of it together for the workshop, but I actually want to hear you explain this. And then just as importantly, how do you think using design to unlearn things helps to systematically change the way people think about things that are kind of ingrained in people? Racism and Tot is a toolkit. It's a framework to be able to dissect design and to be able to contextualize what sorts of racist, sexist, oppressive things, ableist, ages, all those things are happening within a design and be able to use steps to create something that is anti-oppressive. So racism on top began first, of course, with just the topic of racism. Racism is very nuanced. There is so many things that are involved in it. Like you just cannot remove yourself from the intersectionality and from capitalism and all those things. But we tried to just make it so that when faculty members, especially would come up to myself or Lisa, they'd say like, how are you like talking about racism and talking about social justice and talking about these social innovations and all these things within your classroom? Like, how are you getting away with it? Is like some of the, the phrases that we'd hear. And it's like one getting away with it. How, what do you mean? And, and oftentimes it was because Folks are one, afraid that they don't know it all, right? They're gonna go into the classroom and not be this expert, which again, settler colonialism has taught us that that's the way education works, which is absolutely not true. Everyone brings in something into the classroom. But then two, you know, they were afraid of students. What if students come back and say that like racism doesn't exist basically? And so we created this toolkit to help guide 
educators through a project and it lasts the whole semester. It could easily last a whole year. People could easily do this for a whole thesis project, like taking a prompt and using the framework to create something. So basically, you know, we work with it in the classroom. Um, we also do workshops, which is probably when you have seen me a lot. We do a lot of workshops around the country and internationally. Right now, we're working with a lot of corporate entities. So educators were the first people that we were focused on because we're educators. And then as soon as we did our first workshop, I think, I feel like you were there at the diversity and inclusion, like it was the diverse, design plus diversity inclusivity summit that happened. It was the first one, right? We did our first workshop. It was like almost 200 people. And there were so many corporate people there. They were like, we want to use this at corporate. Like, why is this only for educators? So since then, especially this year, especially after all of the George Floyd protests and you know, all of those things, um, we've worked with a lot of large companies. So folks like PayPal, Target, we have a contract coming up in January with Spotify and Mozilla um, next year as well. So like we were working with a lot of corporate entities who were like, how do we take racism untaught and not just use it for an instance? right? An instance of design, but how do we actually integrate it within the processes that we use within our institution? And so those have been super amazing to be able to explore with these institutions because everyone is really thirsty for it. Like one, where are all the POC designers? And then two, you have these amazing women of color who are doing this awesome toolkit. Why wouldn't you want to integrate that into your processes? So, so racism taught again, is just a framework and a toolkit to help folks create anti-racist and anti-oppressive design. We called it racism untaught because white folks don't go to a class. They don't have like a racism 101 class and begin to learn how to be racist, right? But we are socialized. Socialization is literally education throughout our whole lifetimes to believe a certain thing, even internalized racism, right? Internalized white supremacy that we, we all hold. And so being able to break down the flaws in the way that you were taught as a designer, just as a, a person in general, those are absolutely going to help folks understand that like we have to be way more critical than we're being right now. A lot of times I think that folks take things for face value. They're just like, oh yeah, you know, there's a lot of people of color who are in jail right now. And it's like, well, let's break that down, you know? And I think what racism and taught allows folks to do is to be able to be very critical of the systems around us and to understand, you know, I want to take that quote that Antoinette Carroll always says, you know, just these systems of oppression, they're all designed and they can be redesigned. And so using racism and taught tell Help us redesign, reimagine, abolish, and absolutely just recreate something new um, is so important for us to thrive and for all of us to be included right in society. So I would say like absolutely unlearning our problematic socialized behaviors is going to help us move forward, especially in this conversation around equity and inclusion. No, that is amazing that something that initially was was started, I guess, as an educator space, right? Because you were getting the question that you and some other people were, were able to do this and how were you able to figure this out, right? And, and now creating, well, it's not anything new. It's just like how to rethink and reshape what you've been taught and then kind of creating this framework to allow them to, to be able to replicate this, right? So it, it's not just, because I think that's always the worst thing where certain professors who do something a certain way, like if you don't go to their class, then you're not going to learn from their space or the way that they teach. So you you may lose out because nobody else will get to do that except if, you know, oh, I want to take Teresa, you know, I want to take Professor, you know, Moses, that's why I'm going to take her because of this. What I just heard too is now the expansion of that to, to move it out of the educator space and to move it into corporate, which like you said, in this crazy flipped out year of 2020, as we're about the end of it, where everybody is is clamoring for something like that, 
and and people are now wanting to be that and to start to to how do we think about this in corporate America? Because those are the spaces that are now shifting to be holding on to those systematic ways of thinking. Who gets elevated? Who gets hired above somebody else? What's the pay scale? All these things that, that come into play need to be rethought. So I really appreciate that, that people are now coming to you to start thinking about it in their systems versus only being limited, let's say, into the educational space, which is helpful for the students who are taking it because they're going to learn how to shift and, and, and create these models into other things. But it's actually more impactful now that it's that you have all of these slates for corporate America too. So congrats on that. Thank you. Yeah. With the educators too, there's, I think, I just feel like all the educators are very intimidated to talk about these topics because, you know, they don't know about them at all, but I just like give the example, you know, about the racist designs that show up on H&M's website. I was like, do you know how many hands, how many eyes saw that before it was published online? You know, how many people made the decision to put a little black boy in a sweater that said King of the Jungle, whatever it said, something about implying that he was a monkey, you know, yeah, monkey and in the so, jungle. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm just like, do you know how many eyes that that had to see? And I'm just, I tell my students that I'm like, if you were the, not even, you weren't even the photographer or the person who posted on the website, but let's just say you were the person who had to go grab the shirt because you're just, you're starting out. You had to go grab the shirt and give it to the model. If you could have looked at that shirt and said, hey, this might be considered wrong, you know, to put this on this little black boy, how many problems would have been solved, you know, had one person just questioned that. And so I like to think of this whole process, like racism untaught as being something a lot bigger that we need a lot more help on. It can't just be the black professor in the design department to do this. It can't just be Lisa. It just can't be me. It can't just be just another person of color. It has to be everybody talking about this stuff in class. And the more we talk about it, the more comfortable we're going to get and the more unacceptable these things that are happening in our society will be. Right. It's unfortunate the pressure that it puts on educators of color to be the only ones having these conversations or the the, the person of color in that room and the agency or things, the only ones who are bringing this up. If anything 2020 taught us is that there needs to be so much more allyship in this conversation to be like, we need more people who are identifying and and calling out people because if it just seems to be the people of color, then it always seems to be, well, you always say that. No, it needs to be other people to be like, this is a problem, right? Why are we consistently doing this? Because that's what's going to you know, make change. It's a, it's a little bit unfortunate that it can't always be the people of color who bring up the information and then go, we don't really see it because it's not from our perspective. But yeah, this is definitely something that needs to happen so that other people start to notice that this is not good. This is not how we should operate as a business, as a society, as people who respect other people, and how do we need to shift. So it's definitely great that I'm hearing that we're, we're now taking this into a, another realm. And it, it brings me back into the idea of what you mentioned, even as that person who, who needed to grab that shirt, right, and bring it back into the room and be like, here, this is what we're showing, right? Because I've worked in fashion, you've worked in fashion, we know kind of there's a sample on, that's outside the room when you need to show it. And you're like, cool, this is what it is, right? It's a green shirt with this graphic. Are we okay with it? And somebody approved it. It's unfortunate that usually that person is like, I'm not going to say anything because that's my job, right? Like, I may lose my job if I call this out. And it's interesting now that we're, that we're looking at that and looking at the ways of empowering that person to make a decision to to bring this up. And you used to be in Duluth, Minnesota, and now you moved to St. Paul, Minnesota, and are teaching in the University of Minnesota's is it Center for Design or College of Design? College of Design. Mm-hmm. And then you're also now the role of Director of Design Justice. 
over there? How did that come about? And how are you enabling and empowering students to make those type of choices? So this role, I don't want to be like, oh yeah, I'm all that, but they made this role for me. So when I came and I interviewed, I initially just interviewed, they had, it was an assistant and associate professor positions. They had two available and they ended up hiring three people, including me. And so they created this position because of the work that I was doing. You know, I accepted the position one in a heartbeat because I'll be around more people of color. Like Duluth is the whitest place I have ever lived. And it's not just like it's white, but then also there's this Minnesota nice thing that is like this cultural, we don't talk about this, you know, or we kind of just like shy away from these conversations and coming from Texas where, you know, if you're a racist, that we don't serve your kind here. Like they will tell you, you know, that we are not working with you versus like Minnesota, they'll be in your face and then turn around and totally be someone that they were not supposed to be. So coming to the Twin Cities and accepting this role, um, it was really just kind of paying me for the things that I was already doing in Duluth. And Duluth, it took a while. And I feel like maybe they think it was going to be like instant when I first came down here. But like, I showed up to community meetings. I showed up to community spaces. I built relationships with people and I brought community into the school and they wanted that here. I do a lot of work around community and getting folks involved, like using the resources that I have, like if there's funding available and the university can sponsor something like my connection with the office of diversity and inclusion there in Duluth was just like super strong because I was doing a lot of that work and connecting folks with those community organizations. And so I think that the Twin Cities campus just had to hop on board and be like, you know what, we actually want this, we're going to lighten her teaching load. We're going to allow her space and time to be able to build up this role, build up this collective and make those same community connections here because they see the value in it. And so that's kind of how, you know, this role started after I accepted the role. I'm now here. I started in August, which is just the semester. And, you know, I've been able to host a few events for students and employees of color. I've been able to do inclusive pedagogy audits. So being able to say, here are the things that I do in my class. Let me present on this and let other folks know what's going on and how they can bring in some of those inclusive practices. So talking about like, what is your late work policy? Like, do you just want it to be on time or do you want it to be good? Or what is your policy on attendance? Are we treating this like a position? Like, can we say, hey, you get these personal days and if you don't show up, you don't. And I'm not being concerned if the student's not gonna show up. You know, a lot of people are really concerned about control in the classroom, which to me says colonial ways of knowing and learning. And it's just like, we need to break those. We really need to break those in the classroom where we think that we have control over humans. Like they need to show up to this and do that. And I feel like this semester I had a student who emailed me and was like, is today required? I think it was like a day after a holiday, right before the holiday or something. They were like, is today required? I know that we were just doing critique, blah, blah. And I emailed back and I was like, nothing is required. You can do whatever you want, you know? And I think when people let go of that power, you actually begin to see students in particular show their initiative, show their their own self-learning It's about the control piece. And I just, I'm not feeling that at all. I think it's very colonial to think that way, to try and make someone do something. It's like, if they want to do it, they'll do it, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this role is really about me shifting culture within pedagogy and curriculum in the College of Design. Um, And then it's really about me bringing those connections, those community connections, which is a lot harder now that there's COVID and I haven't been able to just show up to a community meeting. So I'm very excited to be able to do that once these vaccines roll around and all that and hoping 
maybe next year or something, you know, we can start that again. But that's what this role is really about, is about shifting culture in the College of Design. And I have support to do that. I do have a bit of power and I'm still searching for more of it to be able to really say and mandate some stuff like, hey, you know, let's talk about these in the classroom, you know, so. That's great to hear that that one, they they wanted you so much that they created something for you, but also, like you said, paying for what you've been doing. That's a great way of, of them thinking forward to be like, instead of, you know, normally, well, we're going to ask you to do this and dress for the role that you want. And then if maybe we'll, no, we created the role for you because you've already been doing the work. The adage, boots on the ground, been in the community centers, been doing things, showing the work. And then they're, quote unquote, now advocating for the fact, well, then we need to do this over here and let's actually create a role for that. And then, of course, reducing your teaching load, right? Because that would suck to then do all this and be like, well, you still need to teach this amount of hours and be the director of design justice. Like that would be like, nope, that, that can't work. And it's interesting that the approach of the rethinking pedagogy with the aspect of latenesses and attendance I agree on the one hand, because I think there's a shift in the way that we need to approach how we rethink that. Because if we're thinking about quality work and we're, and we're rethinking all of these things, I think there's one expectation that we can't really focus on some of these other aspects that are just checks and balances of just to make sure you're doing something. But at the same time, I struggle with this, especially now in this virtual world, you know, as New York has been hit with with COVID and our student body being you know, one of those bodies that are that are part of the essential worker staff. So there's a lot of people that were checking in on them, you know, to make sure everybody's okay. They may not have the luxury of, of just being home with a computer and, and things like that, that we're focused on that. So sometimes having these moments of check-ins is a way to kind of create this moment of like, are you there? Do you need any support? And I totally understand the idea of, of you know, not sticking to that because I, I I think I've done something similar where students are like, well, I need to be able to, you know, do this or my job had to shift its working hours. And I'm like, go do that. Like, you know, we don't have to be sticking to a schedule, but it's also the respect and the responsibility for you to reach out to me and ask those questions. And I'm like, yeah, if you do that, any student who's ever reached out to me and goes, I have an issue. Can we readjust? Can I talk to you after? You're owning a responsibility and I'm always going to work with that student. Because it's the ones that unfortunately slip and slide a little bit that we're kind of wondering, is this whole COVID impact really adjusting because we have no way of, of, of maintaining where they're at? When before, when we're in person, there's body language. There's all the other things that you can start to see and you can't create body language <laughs> in, in Zoom. One of the things that I do in my class is called a community agreement. And I'm sure you're familiar with this, but I have the students create it. And so the students, once they create it, that gives them the power to then hold themselves accountable to what they said they were going to do at the beginning of the semester. And I do these community agreements. They read them every single day, every single day that we meet. At the end of that community agreement, I say, is there anything we want to change, anything we want to address, anything we want to expand upon? The whole semester, they had no expansions, no changes or anything. However, their community agreement was so detailed because it was, it was a class activity to do it. It was so detailed that it's like when a student then comes up to me and tries to like, you know, students do, they they start to blame you for them not having their work. Like, well, I didn't understand, you know, and, and um, I'm like, okay, let's go to the community agreement. What did that say? What did it say when you didn't understand something? Like, what did you all say that you were going to do? What did you all agree to that? And so giving that power over to them really has them check their self and be like, you know what, if I was at a job 
and I, I came in a week later and didn't have anything for the client, you can't just be like, well, I didn't understand the brief. So you wouldn't say that. You would have to have, take responsibility, right? And so that's one of the things that I do. Also, that vulnerability piece of not just, especially if you're going to talk about things like racism, sexism, all those things, you want to be very open about your own story, your own internal whatever, all of that. But if you're open with them about y'all, I got to get grades in at this time. So y'all can't be turning stuff in late because then you're going to make me look bad, make me lose my job. They laugh, but then they also understand, let me get this to her. You know, let me make sure I'm on point so that she's not over here freaking out, right? I'm very like transparent. I'm, I'm really a transparent person overall, but I'm really transparent in the classroom, just trying to let them know. I also have like days where I have them ask industry related questions and that connects them even more to what I'm doing and how the work that I'm doing in the classroom and what I'm teaching them is actually going to benefit them in society. And so, you know, you can't tell me right now if they went to go because Target's using our toolkit, if they went to go to apply for a design job at Target and they said, oh yeah, I'm racism untaught certified because I did this in my class, that they wouldn't be a candidate that'd be like, oh, let's bring in this person. We don't have to train them because they actually use it in their class. Like, so, so I, I always like to like compare stuff to industry stuff, but really the vulnerability piece has been very helpful because I don't have to be the expert. I'm going to bring somebody in to talk about the systems of oppression and blah, blah, like I'm going to bring someone in to talk about that. And I feel like a lot of times teachers don't want to be shown as someone who doesn't know it all. And it's like, you're only doing, it's a detriment to you. And it's a detriment to the student because they don't actually get the stuff that they need where you could have easily just called me over and had me speak as a director of design justice to talk about some of those things, you know? So people are learning. I think they're starting to let go of the reins a little bit, but I think it's about control for a lot of these teachers and letting go of that is really hard for folks. It's like, that's not how I was raised. That's not how I was in school. I had to do this and this and this. And I was like, but did you have a good learning experience though? No, you know, most of the time it was like really horrible, right? Yeah, I think power and control, even in small doses, because obviously you're the person standing in front of the board or at the computer or, or controlling the, the the thing or when something is due, right? So there is a level of, of control. But I think, you know, your idea of community agreements that I've heard in, in other spaces where we're thinking about, you know, how can we be more equitable and everybody, you know, not being so focused on the tangible results being the same across the board, being a little bit more flexible is something that I think us as educators need to be a little bit more attuned to even more so now things are so fluid that you know we can't go into the space the same way and even if we did have good experiences <laughs> you know in our design education we need to be learning all the time so i i appreciate the little tidbit of of the community engagement kind of thing for us because it'll probably allow us to be more flexible and real with our students and i think the vulnerability factor that you mentioned is definitely something that all of my colleagues who are very similar into the way we think like, Hey, we're going to open up our lives to like, this is what we're doing. You know, I was late. I woke up late. I did things like that. I know when I, when I used to like, unfortunately walk up late into a class and be like, I overslept. I was grading. I was this, sorry. You know, I always told them if I was ever late to a class, nobody in this class is late that day because it's my fault. Like, you know, just being totally honest that I can't, if I can't hold myself to the same rules that I would normally hold you, then I can't change it. Even if somebody came at like five minutes left to the class, nope, they're totally on time because I was already late. Like, you know, creating those moments and, and you know, thank you because it just, sometimes we need to be, hear that again and again and again to just be reminded that we no longer should just like, I guess, default back to, well, that's the way it was done or that's the way our, our institution likes to do it or that's the way I've even done it. You know what? I think all the good educators are the ones who keep on adjusting and shifting along the way because society and and things keep on telling us that 
things need to be done a little different. Going back to after we have our little segue of, of design education, your boots on the ground in Duluth, you know, you being able to, to be part of that, going into community meetings and doing some of that stuff. How were you drawn to community work? And what kind of impact has that had on your creative output? So especially my community work within Duluth, it wasn't even so much of like I was drawn to it to do something good for people, even though that ended up being exactly what it was. It was really out of necessity. There were no black people. There were no Latinx people. There were no indigenous people. I didn't know where anybody was. And so I was literally like, am I here by myself? And then, you know, once I finally got involved in communities, seeing the need and seeing that I had privilege to be able to do something about it really then motivated me. But really, I think a lot of folks are like always like, you know, Black, queer women are always like at the lead at the front of these protests. And it's like, I honestly think that a lot of us are searching for healing. We're searching for community. We're searching for oneness with each other. And it just so happens that when we do that, we also have to end up fighting for something. And so I think for me, it was really about necessity. It was really about finding my community and being able to give where back where I could, right? Because I know, like, especially in Duluth, I was, I know I was in the top 10% of people who earned out of the Black people. Like, Black people were in, are in poverty there. Indigenous people are in poverty. And so it's like, if I know I have this privilege, what can I do? And so that's exactly how I got involved in the community. I mean, it was literally like I went to the NAACP meeting the first week I got there. <laughs> like I, I went there that first Sunday that I was there and met people. And I just started started from there, um, you know, and then tried to, to join like employees of color groups at UMD and tried to find other spaces. I even made my own space called Color Connect. And every time I met a person of color, I'd be like, let me add you. I'd take out my phone. Let me add you to my Facebook group and blah, blah. And I started having monthly socials. And that's how I really met people. And I think that's really the extrovert in me. Like I would not even think like an introvert would be okay with that at all. But that was just my, my personality. And so like being able to start my own space as well was super necessary. And again, necessity. Like that's exactly how it started. So now trying to find your people, right? And in a place that you feel is not necessarily not for you, but you just like, where are all these creatives? Where are all these people of color? Where are all these women? Where are all these, you know, black, queer, you know, where are all these people that I can kind of like connect with, right? So I can share my story or we can just grab a drink, have a coffee, whatever. Just how did that community organizing work, community finding work start to really impact the way you created your output and your artistry? Oh, that's such a good question because that really is a reflection of what I do. So I, when I think about projects like, Project Natural and Umbra, yes, they were first a way for me to express what was happening with my own personal life. Like, so Project Natural, really being able to talk about like, this is my natural hair journey, right? I didn't have these resources, so I want to make them available to everybody else. And in turn, in doing that, it empowered the community. It brought Black women together to see like, oh my gosh, there's a whole space dedicated to me and my natural hair journey. And so that's kind of amazing. Same way with Umbra. Umbra was a very liberating exhibition to create, to just be able to say like, here are all the things I experienced as a Black woman here in this community. And to be able to see that reflected in the faces of the Black women that were laughing and crying and just relating with all of those pieces ends up bringing the community together. So I would say absolutely my work 
is a reflection of bringing community folks together, empowering specifically marginalized folks to be able to see ourselves, our true selves without white gaze, without expectations that are placed on us because of who we are and what identities that we hold. So your statement is just a reflection of exactly the work that I do. The big projects that I have are always centered around how can I bring community together around this? How can I empower, educate, provide resources? And that's really how my work is centered. Absolutely. When you look at your work, you definitely get that feeling. And I kind of wanted to hear it from you because I think it's it's sometimes, like you mentioned, art sometimes is is one of those things where you're supposed to either look at it or create things. But I, because we talked about how you have meaning and you don't just create something for the sake of somebody to view it, but there's things I wanted to, to really give context to the way you've connected those things. And you've just easily segue into my next question. <laughs> so as you're, you're doing those two amazing projects and you're focusing on black experiences, I noticed in the Umbra thing, you had themes that you, you focused on. It seems that there are six themes of gaze, control, savior, danger, anger, burden, and liberation. Can you tell me why those six words? Yeah. So what you were kind of hitting on just now is the way in which I involve all of these different elements within all the work that I do. I am absolutely a systems thinker, so I'm never going to create just an art piece and that be it. We're going to have a zine. We're going to have this interactive piece. We're going to have all of these different things. Like that is exactly how I do my work. And so those six themes, those came out after I finished the whole thing. So I like to, again, because I'm a systems thinker, I'm like, how can I more easily digest this? How can folks who are going to go through this and experience this more easily digest what it is I'm trying to say? And having those six themes was a way for me to organize it and so that folks could be able to take it in and see what are some of the ways that those things are reflected. I imagine that maybe a couple of years from now, I will begin to add more pieces underneath those different themes um, within the show and the show would just become even larger, right? COVID kind of stopped the show from running the way it needs to run, but I have an exhibition happening in January um, in Austin, Minnesota. And so, you know, I imagine that like, it will just begin to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so those themes definitely came out afterwards. But again, it was just a way of never just being intentional about what I'm trying to communicate and having folks understand that like, I'm not just, I don't have just a picture of like three middle fingers just to say I'm angry. I'm really talking about the, the danger of our anger. And then also like how we are in danger all the time as black women. And we have a right to be angry about that. Thank you for that. And, and I love to hear that it it wasn't something thought of in the way that, oh, these are the things that I think I need to produce. It was now I need to have people understand the work that I put and give it some type of extra context. And, and that's a, I think that's a really great way to say that as a systems thinker, I'm looking at all the different ways that either somebody can experience this when they're viewing it. I know you had some experiential things at the exhibits. It's almost like if I can parse this, it's so much easily digestible and I can bring more people in to understand what I'm trying to do. You know, just looking at the the images for that, but even the thought process of making sure that the work which has meaning can start to give the meaning that you want it to instead of maybe somebody else controlling the meaning. Doesn't mean that somebody doesn't see their own journey in there and, and their own versions, but you're directing them to say, look, go down this lane and this is the experience I want you to have with that. And I think that's very powerful. I think it's a very interesting way to kind of think about how 
you want to not control the message, but guide the message. I think it's a better way of, of explaining it. So you're not like totally taking away the, the viewer's aspect of, because looking at art, you want to be taken away and have your own experience. And sometimes if you're being too heavy handed in the way you want somebody to, to like, this is what it's supposed to say, literally, then I'm kind of like, hmm, you know, because you're not like, allowing me to experience it. Yeah, I'm just, that totally makes sense. I think with Umbra specifically, I wanted folks who are not Black women to experience it a certain way. So if you um, remember going through the exhibition, there are like two different ways in which you're supposed to, to experience it. If you were Black women, you're supposed to read this description. If you were everyone else, you know, I said error bios, you're supposed to read this other description, right? And so I was very deliberate in the fact that everyone who fit in the everyone else uh, category was supposed to just listen, was just supposed to read and listen and take it in, right? Whereas Black women got the liberty that they don't get in society to experience it however they wanted to do. Like even the zine, I had a two-sided, you know, a flippable zine. And so the one side where it was like everybody else, they just had to listen and read the quotes and read what I said and what I put there and just take in those images. Whereas the other side, Black women were invited to add to the zine. And so for me, you know, being able to have people feel that like as a person who is not a Black woman, I don't get liberty in this space. And this is how Black women feel all the time. That was very intentional on my part for them to understand like, hey, we don't get this opportunity all the time. And so what you're going to do is just sit back and listen to us because anytime we try to talk, you all are just like, you're an angry Black woman and you don't really even listen to us. So now listen to look at this beautiful art and understand these messages. And that's how I want you to experience it. I'm trying to control this because you all already have, all have control over our bodies and our minds and our thoughts and the way that we speak in society. So it was a very intentional way of having folks who have different identities to experience Umbra. And that was, I mean, that was just intentional. I can't say that enough. No, that seems very empowering to be able to have those two sides, but also give a voice or a perspective to the people who one, should just be listening, but in reality to say, look, this is for us, for you and the other black women who, who you want to create this safe space and to allow them to experience a totally different way. And like you mentioned, to add that to me is so great that you're being inclusive in this, even though it's an exhibition of your own work to say that this is not just my story or my perspective. It is our story. And just listening to the power that you're sharing with me right now just allows us to say that with the intention is is so much design decision, right? So much thought in, in the way that you want people to experience regardless of who's looking at it. And with that, the work for both Umbra and Project Natural, there's an illustrative style and a typography that almost resembles that of like woodcut and, and hand done nature from my perspective. I'm going to ask a silly question now, but was that a conscious choice in the way you created that? Or did it just feel right in the way that you made it, that that's just the way this these visuals and this typography should look? That's a good question. So Project Natural is definitely a different style. Like as far as like, it was a lot more influenced by my fashion illustrations. And I use a lot of natural like elements for the hair just to imply that like there's over, it's like 188 different textures of hair in the black hair um, community. But Umbra is really birthed out of this new style that I believe I found here, uh, well, when I was in Duluth. 
I'm really inspired by, and it doesn't look anything like Emory Douglas's work, but I'm very inspired by what he did for the Black Panther Party and being able to like use art to be able to like share messages, you know, very rapidly. And so in that idea, in my mind, I was like, okay, if I need to get a message out rapidly, you know, and if I'm just like using an exacto knife to like cut things out, what does that look like? If I had to get on the computer really quickly and do something digital and I don't have time to like click and then like draw out the little pin to make it a curve, like what does that look like? So that is often reflected in my work. That's oftentimes why clients want to hire us is because of that particular style, that use of just like, let's use negative space. Let's use very simplified shapes to get the very bare minimum across to folks. And I think about that in the means of activism and organizing. What is the very foundation that I need folks to understand? And if I complicate it with a whole bunch of other things, people are going to bring all this stuff in that I don't need them to. So my work is really reflective of communicating the very simplest form of what I'm trying to say. Three middle fingers that are a silhouette and all black. And they have like these whites. I was going to make like the white be like a mirror so that people could see themselves <laughs> and us saying F you. But, you know, to have this very simplified message and using this like really nice open negative space to me. I was trying to evoke the urgency of the message. And then also, again, that very simple, simple, simple message in the show throughout the whole thing. And so for me, again, very intentional choices, very intentional style. I feel like everyone, when you're in design school, you think like, I need to get my style. And I want people to hire me because of my style. When in actuality, people are not hiring you because of your style. They hire you because you're a designer. You can do what they're asking you to do. It's only now that I begun to create my own style and that people are just now recognizing it. So that is not something that you come out of college, you know, being able to do, but being able to flourish in that, doing my own personal projects and being able to affect my own community in this way has shed more light on what I'm doing. But yes, um, what you are seeing and the way that you are describing my work is exactly what I want it to be. It looks very rapid, even though it takes a long time. It's, it looks very rapid. It looks like, you know, how do I get this message out really quickly? I think it even looks loud to me, not even like with like use of color, but I think just the way that angles hit. I have a very specific way I like doing it. Like I don't like any angles to line up. So like, even if it's like a letter L, I won't have the inside of the L when it, you know, where it meets the vertical and horizontal. I won't have that line up with the end just because I need it to look like I need to get this message out. And that, so that is very intentional for me. Thank you for all of that because it, it feels intentional, right? And, and sometimes, you know, some people can kind of go through that and understand and just create work that, that is done a certain way. And some people, like you just mentioned, how the parallel lines of an L are not going to meet up on purpose. The intentionality of it to feel energetic and urgent is so interesting to hear that there's thought in the nuance. And I think that when you look at the type and when I, you know, even in the word Umbra and the other messages that you use in that type, I mean, they're so perfectly nested within the letter forms and the way you think about how letters connect together and where you break them and connect it on the, you know, because it's not the perfect word is like goes the whole long way. You may break it up and say, well, now that's going to go down here and now it's going to go down here. And it's so intentional. You know, sometimes it's just people, it just makes sense and they're just doing it. And it's kind of a combination, you know, like you said, with your systems thinking idea before is that now you're making sure that you're doing these things on purpose because for you, it makes sense, but there's also this really deeper meaning behind that. And I definitely see that rapid iteration idea 
coming through. And when I scroll through some of the things on your site or or even the typefaces that you put up there as you're just trying to show these messages, sometimes and especially the messages were rampant during, you know, throughout this year of just re-energizing what's going on. And, you know, none of none of this started now. It's been you've been doing this for a long time and it just kind of unfortunately all of this, the shit that happened this year kind of like elevated everything. And for you to reshare and and refocus people on some of these things and the way you feel, you just see that energy and the color patterns and, and the combinations that are maybe not necessarily what we're used to seeing, I think totally work and totally create that visual sense that you've been working on for so long. And I'm glad that you're finally now for yourself, noticing that there's a style <laughs> that you're, you know, we all had had that. I think I have the same style. It's like, it's a color palette. I tend to use bold typography, very heavy, almost feels like boxing posters from the, you know, thirties, forties and stuff like that. That to me just feels nice. And when I work in that, it just kind of all makes sense. It doesn't matter what I do. It just kind of all feels like it goes together. And that seems like the, you're hitting that same stride with the way you're creating this typography and stuff like that, right? So you, you you just even tinge into the next thing, right? So you teach design justice. Your creative work, you know, focuses on a lot of that stuff. And now you and your partner have a studio that are focused on that. It's it's so empowering that you've been able to take all of the three different things, your your, your personal work, your education, and your creative work, and they're all inhabiting the same space, <laughs> right? Because some people don't do that. They're, they they kind of like, I have to work for a client, so I have to do it the way they want me to do. But why start a creative studio? You know, one, one of the main, the first questions that we asked ourselves was, what are we going to wear to the next protest? And <laughs> as a fashion designer, I was like, well, I'm going to create my own thing, you know? And so, you know, that's kind of how, how it started. But, you know, I'd always been doing like client work and uh, freelance stuff, you know, on the side of me teaching, you know, just because I think you have the liberty to do that as a teacher. But yeah, I just was like, how do we really integrate this into what we do? And it's interesting that you are like, lay- you're basically layering everything, right? I do this teaching. I have this director role of design justice. Then I do these projects, braces and Montat. I do Project National. I do Umbra. And then I have this design studio. And I think I am trying to be a living testament of integrating equity, inclusion, justice, liberation through all of my life's work. Oftentimes what we see with this performative allyship is that it's off to the side. It's this little thing they pull out to say, black people keep shopping here. Latinx people keep shopping here. Indigenous people, we love you. Asian people, we, you know, and they pull it out at these opportune times to capitalize on what's happening, you know? Oh, there's racial injustice happening with Asian folks because of the coronavirus and what Trump is saying. So we want to just send out a email blast that we support our Asian staff. And it's just like, but if you actually had it integrated into celebrating Asian culture within your institution, it wouldn't be such empty words. And even we've been talking a lot at the University of Minnesota about like our hiring practices and how like we have, we initially had the diversity committee as one of these meetings that the, the potential person had to go to to interview with. And it's like, why is that on the side? Why is there a diversity committee that they meet with? Why are we not talking about diversity in every single interview that we have with this person? You know, because I don't know about you, but like whenever I go and interview anywhere, by the time they get to that diversity question, I didn't already answered it. I had already answered this from question one, two, three, four, five. And then by the time I get down to whatever question it is, and they're like, well, you've already answered this question, but how does diversity, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, well, it's in my life's work. And I feel like people have to really take this on to say, how can I weave in anti-racism? How can I weave in liberation and freedom and justice into everything that I do? And when you do that, 
things begin to just make more sense. I know I still do a lot because I just like doing a lot, but I think people think that it's more than it actually is because the stuff that I learned through Project Natural enabled me to do the work that I do with Umbra. The stuff that I learned with Umbra helped me to continue doing the work that I'm doing with Racism Untaught. The stuff that I'm doing in my PhD in social justice education is also weaved into every single thing that I am doing and working on in my life. And so I think folks need to understand that they have the opportunity to do that too, that they don't have to have these little segments of diversity in these random places that they can really learn how to permeate all of their work. And I feel like if people actually had people of color, if the people actually had BIPOC folks on the front of their mind, liberation on the front of their mind, this would be a no brainer. They'd be like, we have to do this. We have to integrate this. But because folks have the privilege to completely forget about all these issues, they don't put it into their work. It's not a part of them. Whereas with BIPOC folks, we don't have a choice. Either we're going to continue to be harmed by it, or we're going to do something proactive against it. And I've chosen the latter. So folks who have the privilege to be able to do that, find something where you can integrate this into your whole life's work because it's necessary. It's needed. We are not the majority. You are. So what are you doing for the liberation of BIPOC folks here in the U.S.? <sighs> Woo! <laughs> that's going to go bumper sticker. It's the longest bumper sticker ever, but that's like the bumper sticker, right? Look, you were literally, you answered the diversity question before it's ever asked. You're answering my questions before I even ask them. <laughs> <laughs> because I was going to ask you, like, how, how do we get students and creative people to give back further to communities? Right, because it's it's one of those things where sometimes it, it's hard for for people to even be like, am I allowed to bring myself to my work? Am I allowed to do that? But also, you know, how how can I continue to to think about that? And thank you for that that ability to say that if we can do this and we can permeate ourselves in everything that we're about, one, eventually we're no longer hopefully having these conversations, and two. Like, why the hell are they even asking the diversity question if you've done answered it already, right? They shouldn't even go and go, well, how do you, no, it, duh, you've answered it, right? I know it, it, it's kind of corporate culture to be like, well, I need to at least go through the, the questions. And I'm like, no, if she answered it four questions ago, that question is null and void now. <laughs> let's not even, let's move on to the question after that. Ah, uh, thank you. Well, as you're you're telling us all these things and, and I and I love the passion and, and the way you're producing and, and, and the way you're thinking about all of this through the multiple things that you do, the layered <laughs> things that you do. And obviously mentioned that you're on top of this, you're also a PhD candidate and now you're actually becoming a student. Ugh. I mean, too many things. What aspects of the creative process do you struggle with? I think I struggled a lot with the creative process when I was doing things I wasn't passionate about. And I was just creating work because the client asked me to do it. And I think I'm now at the place, like, again, if you're just a student, this is not going to be you for a while. But I finally, I'm finally at the place where I get to choose who I want to work with. You know, when people come up to us, when they email us, when they come and they see us at shows or whatever, and they want to do a project, I get to decide if what they're doing is something that I'm also interested in doing. Again, that's a privilege of being able to work as long as I have worked and also to have the portfolio that I have. It's a privilege. Absolutely. I believe that. And I know that. But I don't think I necessarily have a super hard time getting excited about something when I have said yes to it. Because after I've said yes to it, I'm like, okay, let's start sketching. Let's start blah, blah, blah. I think the hardest part for me in the creative process, if there is any, is maybe coming up with specific language. 
So like naming things, if we have a client who comes up and says, I have a new business and I just, I need a name because there's just so much that rides on that, that pressure. And so I usually leave that up to uh, my partner, (laughs) Jordan, to do. I don't think I have, I have so many blocks because I've decided that I'm not, I'm just tired of taking on projects I'm not passionate about and I'm not excited about. And if I do take them on because I know them and I've worked with them a long time ago or something, I'm going to upcharge it because I'm just like, this is not, I'm not in my vein right now of doing like a school, blah, blah, blah. Like, I just don't want to do that, you know? And oftentimes I'll just refer it to someone else if I can. But yeah, I, I don't think I really have a super hard time now because the things that I choose are things that I would have chosen, you know, to do being paid or not. Right. And so being able to say that I think really helps me in identifying what projects I want to work with, what clients I want to work with and how I want to work with them. Right. And how I want to be partnered with them. So, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not really at that place anymore where I have too many roadblocks ahead of me because I'm passionate about it. That's great. I mean, it's great to be able to, to get to that point where you understand that. Now, conversely, let's think about it. What would you tell a younger Teresa entering the creative industry or wanting to be creative, what would you tell her to give her a leg up? Absolutely. This is the one thing I will always tell anyone who asks me is to seriously look at what your, your passion is first. Don't think about the fact that you're a designer and you need a graphic design job. And I'm going to go to LinkedIn and I'm going to search graphic design job. What you should be searching is the issue that you're passionate about. If you're passionate about animals Find a place that you're interested in working for and email them specifically and say why you're interested in being in that business or in that institution, why you're interested in working with them. And I would go about it that route. That's exactly what I would tell myself because I feel like as soon as I got out of college, one, I graduated in 2008. So I was at the height of like another depression that we're kind of like in now, right? And so I was very desperate trying to find like positions and try to find all these things. But if I could go back, I really would have searched for the company. I always say issue first issue first. Like that is the thing I would have searched for first. Then I would have sent these beautiful emails, romantic, beautiful emails, like just completely trying to overtake them and say, this is what I saw. This is the things that I feel like I contribute. I feel like I could really be somebody here within your business. Like I would have just sent them a romantic letter talking about how I wanted to be in that, in that place. And oftentimes when my students have taken that advice, they get interviews, even if they're not hiring. They get to, you know, they get to talk with a CEO or whoever it is, even if they're not looking for position. And sometimes they get positions out of that. So if you are actually passionate about an issue and you have this business over here that's actually doing this thing, that's who you reach out to. You don't reach out to just this person who's hiring a designer because that, I mean, I'm telling you, talk about like feeling like you're in a dead end job, you know, is oftentimes because you don't like, you don't like the company. You don't even like, you are literally giving that company money because of your work. You want to do that for someone that you're excited about. And um, I think folks need to understand that. So issue first is always the top advice that I give folks. Issue first. Nice. I love it. So with all of that, right, and with that thought and in mind of giving students or, or giving yourself that ability to think about how you would reach out to those type of business partners or actually those type of business that you want to work with, what type of support in, in this day and age do you think young creatives need today coming out into the industry? Mm, so one, I do think that folks need to get connected with other designers. And I am not necessarily saying that AIGA is the way to go. If I was talking to another Black designer, I would say, look at African-American graphic designers, that group. 
because they're on their stuff. I'm, and I'm not just saying that because I'm part of the core team, but connect with people who you see, you can see yourself and you can learn from. And I would say like, for me, I didn't know the first place in finding a mentor. Now I'm, I've kind of signed on and got some people who like hold me accountable and can, can help me out when I need, you know, to certain questions asked. But when I was first graduating, you know, I did not know where to start. I didn't know who to contact. And I would so, so really open up that network. It's harder now again, because of COVID, but there are digital events. If you are seeing someone online and I, from the state of black design panel that I was on, I have had probably like six or seven people email me and say, I saw you on there. I just wanted to talk to you. I just want to connect with you. And if you're a student, you best believe I'm going to make some time for you. You best believe I'm going to say, here's my open schedule. Here's a link, you know, make your time slot, blah, blah, blah. And I still meet with people from then. I've met with like a couple of folks like three or four times already talking about their thesis or talking about this or that or just life. And so, you know, when you find someone that you see, like, don't think that they're so out of reach. They're so on another level where you can't contact them, especially if their contact information is somewhere like me, who's on the university page, contact us. You know, I feel like, like Cheryl D. Miller, for instance, she requested me on LinkedIn and I was like, oh my God, Cheryl D. Miller. Like I was freaking out. And now like I'm on a potential partnership with her to teach a class next year um, through my design justice initiative. So like things that I didn't think were possible, I feel like oftentimes, especially as BIPOC folks, we are taught that like that is far out of our reach. Like you'll never get there. You know, you're in this career. You're never going to make any money, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that's just not true. That's a lie of white supremacy to keep you toned down into a box, into this place where folks want to have you. And I'm saying, break that, break that box, completely destroy it and reach for the stars, reach for your dreams and seriously reach out to people who you didn't think you would be able to reach out to. And that's what I wish I would have been told you know, sooner is like Emery Douglas, like emailed him, you know, like, and, and brought him to campus like last year. So I'm just saying like things are possible. And I feel like people, society tells us those, those things are and especially if you are a BIPOC student, we understand the struggle, people who have been in this for a while. And so we're absolutely going to make time for you and, and best believe we want you to succeed. I definitely think that's the, that's the case. And, and just to, to co-sign on your Cheryl Miller thing, she is so giving um, so giving. You, you you would think that somebody like that would be like, I have no, I don't have the time. No, she is she is like the total opposite way. She will make the time, even if it's five minutes. She will say, "Cool, I got five minutes. I could talk to you." You know, and I and I think that's a testament to how we want to keep this conversation going and let other people know that there are people out there, right? Because before. We couldn't see us in the industries because there weren't other people in the industries for us to look up to. And somebody like her is making sure that she passes on the torch to other people. And then those people are helping push this. And like you just mentioned, if you notice you're getting a call and if it's a student, you're making yourself available. And I think those are the things that we need to continue to do to allow other people to continue to see that as a creative, as a designer, as an artist, there are others like us out there and we should look to find out who they are, find out how they can mentor us, even just a conversation sometimes goes a long way. And I, I, I've been one of those scared people who, who would not reach out because you you had this systematic idea, well, they're so-and-so and, and you know, who am I to talk to them or ask them for like, you know, an email conversation. And if I've learned anything as, as an educator and when I see other students doing that to their potential people who they wanna connect to, and then that person calls, yeah, I'll talk to you. And you're like, holy crap, right? Like they've been able to do the things that I haven't been able to do. 
And it's so empowering that they then have that, that confidence, right? And I think that's one of the things to empower our students to be able to think like that. And, and especially now that everything is, is digital anyway, like nobody's looking, nobody's going in person to meet anybody for coffee anymore, right? It's almost so much easier to request that time because, you know, I'm in New York, you're in, you're in Minnesota and we're having a conversation, right? Like all of this is possible now. You know, where before we thought like limitations of location were, were that, we're now realizing that that, ha- that doesn't play a role anymore. So thank you for that. What are you working on now? So what I'm working on now, definitely the forefront is going to be racism untaught just because we have so many other new workshops. I mean, the corporate entities that I just set out, like, of course, we're excited to work with them, but there's also a ton of higher education institutions that we're working with next semester. So trying to work through all of that. I would definitely say, so I, we haven't had a new line of t-shirts come out like this whole year. So I'll probably be working on that over the break just to like give myself a break. I really want to create a shirt that says abolitionist on it. And so I really want to get that out there. Um, I just, it's just been in my heart, in my mind, you know, my spirit. So I want to get that out there. Um, So working on stuff like that, I think also I'm trying to plan for a trip to West Africa to really start planning the symposium because the symposium for Project Napster was supposed to happen this year, or I'm sorry, 2021. And because of COVID, I mean, it just kind of stopped every, all the planning and all that. Cause I don't really know, you know, if we can bring that many people together. So the thing that I'm kind of focused on now is like, how can I go to West Africa, learn about uh, natural hair traditions, learn about community traditions, and then bring some of that information back over to black communities here. Wow. Um, and so that is, another, that's the things that I'm working on. And then of course my PhD, which again, all of it's overlapping because I'm going to be creating a book. I really want a design foundations book centered on black liberation. Mm. And um, so that's, you know, and I'm thinking like, you know, Ellen Lumpton, you can teach from her book in a typography class. I want to create something like that, but something that's centered in black liberation. Like how do we start with the first year graphic design student and begin to center their work on the liberation of, of black people and knowing that when you liberate black people, that you're actually liberating all people. Mm-hmm. And so being able to frame it in that way, I'm, I'm kind of getting like tingly even talking about it, <laughs> but that sounds awesome. yeah, I'm very excited to do. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, the impact on not alone. I, I just kind of like envisioning, you know, the ripple effects of, of what that can have, like you mentioned is, is if anybody can do it, <laughs> I believe, <laughs> I believe in you because I don't think that you as somebody who who sits idly by when you have free time you really don't have free time you're doing you're ramping it up and doing something else like so like I can't wait to one probably follow your your journeys cuz you'll probably post some stuff up but to what that can be and how you start to bring those cultures back here and start to bring the idea of you know liberating one actually means liberating all and how we can learn from that so as an educator and as just, as just a human I want to learn. And and so sign me up to whatever newsletter I need to do to follow you on, on all of those. Yeah. But this has been an amazing conversation. I love the passion that you bring to the subject. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this conversation is because there's so many things that you do that are rooted in overlapping natures of to be like, you do not have to sacrifice who you are to do what you what your job is, to be what you are creatively, to think about what you need to research. It all is possible when you're able to think about how things connect and why you need to be that way. And I thank you very much for sharing 
your journeys and and the reasons why you did stuff because because I definitely wanted to know more. What you're doing is rooted, like you mentioned, in the liberation and and the ideas of of just having a space for BIPOC people and Black stories, person of color stories, Indigenous stories. And I thank you for just taking on that challenge <laughs> because you're making sure that a lot of us stay true to why we why we're doing this in the first place. So as people are now totally stoked about you, where can they find out more about, you know, Teresa Moses? Absolutely. You can definitely find out more about me by following on any social. So Project Natural is kind of my first social account and stuff that I'll do, you know, a lot of stuff around natural hair, but really mainly me. And then Blackbird Revolt, again, all the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Blackbird Revolt is um, going to be a lot of my design studio stuff. And then you can also find out more about me um, just going to my portfolio site, TeresaMoses.com. Thank you. Wow. This was, this was such a great conversation. And I really Really appreciate you getting into it and seeing and hearing the passion in your voice was was amazing. Take care. This has been Works in Process. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank my guest again, Teresa Moses. I'm fascinated by all her work visually and what she teaches. It's also great to hear how she's been able to align all of her work progressing the liberation of Black and BIPOC voices. I'm glad she decided to come on the show and share her perspective and creative insight with you, my listeners. The Works in Process podcast is created by me, George Garistegui Jr., and this episode has been edited by Hearsay Productions. Thanks so much for taking a journey with me, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be social, and let's connect on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you like the show, don't be shy. Feel free to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, remember, it's not always about what you create, but how you create it.